Hello and welcome to this week's episode of That Tech Show, the show that removes the magicians behind the magic that's in everyday technology. This week, this week we have an awesome one. This week we have Ben Lavender and, uh, well, Chris, why don't you tell us who Ben Lavender is? Today on the show we have Ben Lavender, a man who has had a profound impact on our way of life over the last 15 years. Why? Well, he invented the BBC iPlayer, a product that paved the way for Netflix and Amazon Prime. It's fair to say that this man pioneered video streaming over the internet, and he's still at it. Currently as the chief product officer for DAZN, which is essentially the Netflix of live sport, which since launching in 2016 is now available in over 200 countries. I actually couldn't believe it when you said we were going to have the inventor of the BBC iPlayer on the show. It's uh, it's quite an honour to actually speak to him, and he was a lovely guy as well. And uh, to actually go on and found DAZONE, which is just incredible, um, it was a great conversation to have. And before we get into the episode, I want to remind you folks that actually we've been releasing bonus episodes of That Tech Show where we cover the news. And this week, we ha- we covered the Apple uh, launch announcements that happened on uh, 4.20 blaze it so if you want to check out some bonus content there from that tech show then uh, do check out our that tech show news segments so uh, without further ado here is ben lavender there's plenty that i want to discuss with you today but um just in order to uh to start the show we like to start in the silver black style of what's your name and where'd you come from. Um, obviously, that dates the show quite a bit for the people who are listening to us. But um, if you don't, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself, that would be a good way for us to kick off. My name is Ben Lavender. I come from Letchworth Garden City right now, but I'm working at uh, DAZN. So I'm the chief product officer at DAZN, of which um, I, I I built from startup, which was about uh, what five years ago, six years ago. It was. It's getting on for six years. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a long, long while ago. So originally, it was um, uh, an idea of it was six people in an office in um, just off Trafalgar Square. It was the idea of oh, let's let's build the Netflix for sport, and uh, and now it, it is um, millions of of customers in two hundred countries. Predominantly, the biggest rights wow. being Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, Italy. Um, Japan, Canada, but uh, said from December it was live in 200 countries. So it's, we're the biggest sports broadcaster in the world and the highest grossing sports app for the last two years running. Wow, that's an incredible growth. And how many how many people are working for the organization now? I believe it's somewhere in the region and two and a half um, thousand or, or so permanent, but then there's a bunch of freelancers and certainly on the creative side. Well, I mean, I'd like to go back a little bit because I'd like to talk about creativity because realistically, when it comes to video and streaming media and zone, I think it's arguable to say that video and streaming media would not be the same if you had not been part of it. So uh, talk about the origin of the iPlayer, Ben. If I, if I go back a little bit, um, I think I will, I will start when I was, at, uh, I was working for Channel 5 and um, at, when I was at Channel 5, I, I was doing, I started getting involved in streaming. Now, streaming at this, uh, this time was the state of the art was over a 56K modem. And if, if you were lucky, you get, you get something the size of a, post, a blurry postage stamp, <laughs> which, which would keep on going up and down. And, it, and even like when I was at Channel 5, I was doing things um, like 
we were trying to work on things like streaming a cabby cam. We did um, uh, a jailbreak, which is kind of a reverse big brother of people trying to escape and live streaming of that. But it was, it was awful. I mean, um, and eventually I, I left Channel, um, Channel 5 to go and go to a startup called Mode. And at mm. Mode, we were looking to distribute music and video um, over the Internet um, using DRM. And, um, and which is where I got the idea of actually being able to sort of distribute um, content. And we were working with um, uh, a, a group called Artist Network, which was basically Dave Stewart and Quincy Jones. So I spent a lot of time in New York working with them and their sort of back catalogue. And so, um, I mean, my CEO and I were flying over to New York on September the 11th. Um, Thankfully, our plane um, didn't take off the, the ground. As we were driving there, we just heard about the Twin Towers. Sadly, our principal investors were based in the Twin Towers. And wow. so, soon after that, we ran out of money. And um, I, I could see the end in sight. And so I jumped uh, ship to uh, take a big pay cut to join the BBC. And so at the BBC, for, for a year, I, I was working on things uh, like uh, Celeb DAC or Celebrity Stock Market children in, in need um gcse bite bite size working on those but really um at the back of my mind um i was starting to i was tinkering a lot of the time around with um BitTorrent and limewire and i was um particularly i i was going through a divorce i had been spending a, a lot of time in in new york with a, a mate of mine who got me addicted on buffy the vampire slayer and <laughs> um after uh, after sort of caning Buffy after Buffy um, episode on, on her, um, her her PVR over in New York, I was coming back to uh, the the UK, and there was a six month holdback to Buffy. And because I wanted my fix of Buffy, um, I, I started <laughs> to go onto um, BitTorrent sites and see if I could download stuff. And I've been doing this after a while. I thought, hmm, I thought this is a bit naughty, and I should probably shouldn't be doing this. But then I thought, hang on a sec, I'm sure there's a way to do this legitimately. And I was working for the BBC and I kind of thought, and um, it was over Christmas and I had this eureka moment uh, when I was at my parents, as I said, I was pretty much, I was on my own, I was going through divorce and I, and, uh, I just, I had this idea, it came to me uh, when I woke up and I just wrote it down and I created this like PowerPoint deck and then I got back to the BBC. First stop was, um, I went to go and see the head of new media strategy, as he was called at the time. Um, who, um, who to present my idea of this catch-up TV services goes backwards of the last um, seven days. And he told me that um, I, um, I was wasting my time. That the BBC's job is to provide programme support material. No, no one would be interested to watch TV on a computer. Um, wow. I should say that I, I, I didn't give up. I, I carried on and worked my way around the BBC. I, I managed to get a little bit of money so I can make a, a promo video and uh, a very ropey um, prototype, which was complete smoke and mirrors. Eventually, I um, it took 84 presentations before I'd actually managed to get into the executive board, which sounds bonkers. But most this was mm. pre-YouTube, and most people thought that I was completely wasting my time. They thought the whole idea would never work. We'd never get the rights. It technically, it wouldn't work. It was just a disaster all over it, as far as they, they thought. They treated me like an idiot savant. Um, eventually, I'd... So many people told me what a bad idea it was and, and why it would never work. I wrote down all of these these questions or, or there were all these reasons why it was a bad idea. And I made sure I'd done enough research to why it, it was possible and it could be done. So by the time I got to 
um, the executive board, my presentation was so polished, so battle tested that there's just no way they, they could um, say, say no to it. And um, I, um, Greg Dyke, who was director general of the BBC at the time, stood up, stood up and said, you've saved the BBC. And I think Alan Yentob called me a genius and and the kind of like the rest is history. I think I should say that I, I, I did resort to a little bit of kind of like bribery. What I did is that <laughs> at the time, the iPad or the iPhone didn't exist. There was, this, there was a thing called an HPI pack. So I, I went into the BBC archive and I got physical tapes because I, I researched each of the members of the BBC execco where do they live? What, how, what are their children called? Where do they get, uh, go to school? What kind of programs are they interested in? Mm -hmm. I got programs which I thought they'd be interested in out of the BBC archive, digitized them, put them onto their own personal HPI pack, gave them to them and said, imagine if you could watch what you would like whenever you wanted and it'd be in your pocket. Boom, there you go. And, and they, they got it. So after that, so that they gave me a, a measly... Um, at the time, quarter of a million quid, which I basically blew all that on rights. And I, I worked with some tech suppliers to get them to provide their services for nothing. Uh, and then um, after that, the results were very positive, but they wanted more data. So they gave me two and a half million uh, to actually run a bigger trial. And our, uh, again, after that, was the results were very positive. However, we had a new deputy director general um, who, um, uh, Mike Thompson, who was um, wanted to put this through a, a new, what he called a public value test to, um, to avoid negatively upsetting the competition, which delayed it by a further 18 months. So, um, wow. so after, uh, after getting ready, ready to go, it was, um, it was delayed some, some points. And, and I think about a few weeks before it was about to go, go live, um, I got um, approached by Love Film and and join love form because i'd um i think i'd run out of steam i wanted to do something <laughs> did you not actually see the launch out of the iPlayer then um, i think it left literally about a couple, couple of weeks before it, it went because it was like wow. at this stage it had been four about four and a half years of my life and i think it was just time to just do something different i, I came along to the we won a bafta so i came along to the bafta award ceremony but um but yeah after that that was that was it and, and so as a result of uh, your frustration of Buffy, streaming has never been the same again. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, you, do you sort of still get any sort of rights, I mean, or, or any kind of royalties or anything associated with iPlayer? I had to, uh, I created the patent uh, for iPlayer. In fact, I've got two patents for iPlayer. As part of that, I was nominally paid a pound. Um, I should say that uh, BBC's never actually paid me a pound. So um, it'd be nice if, if I could sort of claim that some sort of back royalties, sadly not, yeah. of the love of the BBC. So the BBC still owe you a pound. So if, <laughs> if anyone from the BBC is listening, uh, you owe Ben a pound or two. Is it two pounds for the probably, two pounds? Interest. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think probably <laughs> one, one for patent one, one for patent two. So it uh, yeah, should, plus I interest, should, as Sam mentioned. I should say that those patents have held up because... Um, I, about 18 months ago, uh, I worked, I think 18 months, two years ago, something like that. Um, I, the BBC actually asked me to act as an expert witness in a, in a case, uh, without naming names, um, a, 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 a interested third party was trying to question uh, that, but they, the patent held up. So I'm glad, glad I did that. 
Wow. So, I mean, there was an awful lot to unpack, I guess, in that story of how you came to, <laughs> to, to the idea of the iPlayer. But I think in terms of... Um, so what you, you, you... I mean, the Twin Towers thing, obviously mentioning that in the midst of it, and obviously Quincy Jones and, uh, uh, you know, that, that duo, that's incredible. I mean, what, what a start to your career um, <laughs> to be working in, in music and encoding and all of that sort of stuff. That's incredible. How did you actually... Just going back a bit again, I mean, how did you actually get into that in the first place? I was at Channel 5 and hmm. um, my former boss from Channel 5 left to join this startup and then he rung me uh, a few months um, uh, down the line and and um, told me he'd, he'd like me to um, leave and and uh, join uh, join with him. So he pulled me on board. And so we built um, a, a white label service for um, for people to distribute their content. Um, it's worth saying that around the, the time, I think um, Peter Gabriel um, had his own service, which was, um, again, a, a B2B, I, I forgot what it's called right now, um, to, um, to I do, do much the same thing. But obviously, uh, in terms of certainly from music and video, then obviously the likes of, sort of iTunes, et cetera, sort of took over. Well, I think Bowie was getting involved in stuff Bowie, like yes, that indeed. as well. Yeah, yeah. He got had Bowie Net, so he was, he was doing, again, direct. So the idea behind Artist Network, it was um, like... Um, uh, Dave Stewart's black book of of mates is is quite mm. deep, and so the idea was to take their back catalogue and make it available, and monetize it. There, there were a lot of rock stars that were getting involved in 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 the internet then in the late nineties, and that does seem to have fizzled out, I guess. But I guess it's it's replaced by the likes of uh, you know the streaming giants, mm. Apple and Amazon and and Netflix and uh, yourself at the Zone. And, well, Google, obviously YouTube. As, oh yes, of uh, course. <laughs> <laughs> and that one <laughs> but so you, when you started out on this journey of, of of coming up with the idea for the iPlayer none of these things existed then so there wasn't a, there wasn't a YouTube there wasn't a nope. Netflix nope. um and I think you, what you must have YouTube must have launched in the midst of you uh, either developing the prototype because that YouTube came out 2005 is that right I have a timeline um Ooh. which um I I can probably bring up and try and figure out exactly when when things happened. Right, so, we're going to have to have this for the show notes, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, so the, the light bulb moment, December 2002, YouTube launched in um, t 2005. So basically, um, we'd already done a, a technical trial um, and uh, won a, an award and then... Um, so YouTube didn't have streaming at that point, though. YouTube Sorry? was just playing. YouTube was just playing videos at this point. It wasn't even doing sort of streaming or anything like that. Were, were you? Were, was iPlayer doing any live so, streaming um, before i before iPlayer um, launched? There, there was little bits of short clips on the site, but it wasn't. That this was before adaptive bitrate streaming, so it wasn't particularly mm. reliable. And so okay. the first version of iPlayer was like like download downloads and then we had streaming but it's um obviously streaming uh, right now is 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 pretty reliable but until adaptive bitrate came along then it wasn't um it just wasn't quite the same so looking at that timeline then it looks like um a number of a number of organizations kind of beat you to the punch because the bbc had been so slow let me um i mean talking talking you through it so if actually if you sort of go uh if i go go back again 
So yeah, I, th I think I, I I got you to the sort of the, the Greg Dyke moment, um, and and so that's um, the end of two thousand and three. You've got there. So yeah, so that the technical trial went live in like May two thousand and four. Yeah, it was a three month trial, fifteen hundred people, seventy hours of content, download only. It was all using peer to peer. Obviously, mm -hmm. uh, again, uh, influenced uh, by that. What the BBC was worried about being anti-competitive, and so they told me. I was told to present the idea to Channel 4 and Sky, who subsequently poached members of my tech team to work on 4OD and Sky Go, as you do. Um, but I mean, I, I think that, I guess the BBC is, is always worried about sort of upsetting the competition. I mean, one of the projects I worked on was something called BBC Jam, which was their digital curriculum, which phenomenal mm. project, but there was a bunch of other commercial commercial uh, education providers such as Pearson and who were concerned that it would disrupt their competition. Mm. So mm. I, I guess in, in this place, I mean, obviously the BBCI player uh, now is, is still uh, pretty phenomenal. And uh, in terms of, I mean, if you, um, if you actually look uh, right now, I mean, I can just show you this lovely bit of data, which I, uh, which I, um, I have here. Uh, from the latest um, BBC. So uh, if you actually look at sort of in the UK, uh, the iPlayer still dominates um, viewing uh, huh. uh, 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 overall for all adults. I think the um, there are some big changes going on in terms of like this, the 16 to 34s. Uh, they're starting to consume a lot more YouTube. And also when you start looking, breaking that down in terms of lockdown, Lockdown in particular has seen a huge rise in the likes of Netflix, um, and whereas broadcast VOD hasn't hasn't grown as as much for the the, the sixteen to twenty fours. Wow, that's really interesting. I'm amazed that the BBC is actually still the the sort of primary source. Then I would have would have expected that to have been overtaken by Netflix long ago. Well, I guess the thing is, BBC I play is free. Well, well yes, I license, guess license license fee. So not everyone. I mean, obviously Netflix is phenomenal. Not everyone has a Netflix subscription. Mm. Any, anyone can use iPlayer. So speaking of Netflix, obviously uh, you went off to Love Film at uh, after the iPlayer, uh, which is where we first met, uh, working on Love Film together. And I remember at the time uh, it was you'd probably been there for a few years before I joined, but um, there was a great fear of the oncoming onslaught of Netflix arriving in the UK and taking everybody's content. And so we were focused at the time on launching a streaming only package, but I think it was you that introduced the streaming only, well, well the streaming concept into Love Film as well, am I right? Well, it's, it's fair to say what, what Love, when Love Film, when I was approached to join Love Film, it's because what they wanted is a subscription version of iPlayer. So hmm. um, although um, I, originally I was like working on their doing a bit of work on the sort of DVD rental side, pr predominantly it was really focusing on, on getting their, their streaming service um, up and running. So originally you got that on the web and then got that rolling out on um, uh, smart TVs. Um, and, and certainly originally um, it was a little bit of streaming to complement your DVD rental, but after a while it became huge and uh, was then acquired by Amazon. And then it became what was then Love Film became the foundation for Prime Video. Mm. And so the, the TV applications um, that, that were built um, and predominantly a lot of that is actually now out of the Amazon de Development Center, which was very much a combination of sort of like Love Film and, um, 
and um, push button, which we, again, sort of to another um, our development house, which we're using, which all got acquired and became the Amazon Development Center London. What what do you, what was the difference moving from 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 the BBC, you know, a huge institution, obviously, to uh, Love Film being a startup and and getting your ideas to see the light of day? What was the what was the difference for you in doing that for within the BBC versus doing that in Love Film? I guess at, at at the BBC, I mean, BBC iPlayer was my idea. Nobody asked me to do it. I I, I came up with the idea, and so I, I had to try and get that off idea off the ground. Love Love Film was was a different thing. I, I, initially, that it was focusing on improving the experience around DVD rental, but ultimately, what they what they wanted, and what they needed, is the subscription service, which is what I sort of threw threw into uh, threw myself into, and. It is fair to say there was a lot of learning uh, on the job, and I think um, I think probably um, I mean we we were looking because if content is king, distribution is queen. As, as I as I learned that expression mm. for one um, of my former colleagues um, at Love Film, really we focused on on actually getting onto PlayStation, getting onto Samsung TV, LG, mm. etc. And I, I I guess of knowing that even more at, at Amazon. I think uh, when we're at Amazon, then I learned to be even more data-driven. But I think the big change from going from BBC to BBC is is not a commercial entity, um, and so the, the the way you make decisions is not necessarily based upon metrics. Whereas at the startup um, was very uh, love film and Amazon, uh, incredibly so, is incredibly data-driven. Uh, so mm-hmm. that 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 was that was the change. I mean, yeah. uh, so when I joined Love Film, it's because they they wanted to give me a subscription version of uh, of iPlayer. We we got we got bought out by Amazon because they they wanted to effectively take um, um, take that into turn it into a bigger Amazon Prime service. And when I joined DAZN, it was to create the the Netflix for uh, for sport. Mm. Cool. So, so do you think that I mean? The, the big idea that you came up with then is the iPlayer that, you know, has, has evolved yep. over the time then, really. Yes. Um, it, so all, it all goes back to that. It all hinges on that, which, you know, as I, as I mentioned at the top, you know, streaming probably wouldn't be the same without you. Thank you. <laughs> so we have, uh, I mean, it, it was interesting when you were talking about the Buffy side of things before, because I think, I mean, I remember um, the US and the UK being out of sync and having to sort of desperately try and get hold of the US content before it made it over to the UK. That doesn't yep. happen anymore at all, actually. It's almost entirely disappeared, I think. And- I mean, that, that was the thing about Napster. So Napster just made it, made it really easy to get, get hold of um, content um, for free, illegally. And then, um, and then Steve Jobs did a great job in basically scaring the hell out of the record industry, saying you need to wake up and just make it really easy for people to get content. And so then obviously Apple, Apple's business, music business was born, but obviously that's continued to evolve in terms of the music streaming. But as so, you mentioned as well, in terms of the rights, you know, the rights had to change, I guess, to be able yep. to get them uh, to, to get them into a streaming mode. And so you've also had to pursue the rights holders to make your dream a reality. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so um, that, frankly, the technical side of iPlayer was a piece of cake um, by comparison to the uh, the rights. So I think probably the most um, person I've got to probably thank most from the rights is someone called Sarah Gator. 
who was the director of rights and I think business affairs at the BBC. So I had to persuade her and um, and her colleague um, James Lancaster that this was something that would be viable. And effectively, because what they had to do is rewrite all the contracts, and mm. um, it, it was a it was a big big job. So at, at the start, then not not everything would actually go onto um, iPlayer. So it was a slight smaller proportion. You actually had to make sure. So things like all the contracts for things like Monty Python or that they, they were done. It's just like the, you had to change literally everything going forward. And I had to do presentations regularly to rights holders and general sort of talent unions just to persuade them that because um, they were all terrified that they were going to get sort of messed over. So yeah, it was, it was a huge undertaking. And you've presumably had to do the same again with uh, DAZN because but you're changing a different industry, which is sport. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, I mean, that that was that was not me. I mean, so so yeah. um, I guess what DAZN that they've got a sort of heritage of working with rights holders. So there's there's more like standard terms of 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 business for operating with with rights holders. So particularly when you're doing with with Premier Sport. The level of security which they're they're after is is quite considerable. So the security bar, um, having things like um, a customer's uniquely identifiable number on the screen. So for example, if they start if they want to do rebroadcasting, then you can identify and automatically take them down. Um, and so uh, so yeah. The, other than than that, then again, um, I think certain rights holders will be um, higher levels of security required. That was that was going to be my like one of my questions as well around security and all the rest of it. Like, was it difficult? I mean, there were so many. First of all, there would have surely have been um, some stakeholders who would question the security and all the rest of it for iPlayer or anything that you touch. Um, from a technical standpoint or logistical, is is that one of the hardest things to kind of get right and prevent from happening? Because I guess. There are there are some smart people out there for figuring out ways to, like you say, rebroadcast, uh, download videos. Like, is that a big undertaking to be able to prevent all that, either technically think, or whatever? I, I think there's there's a certain amount um, of um, if you, if you try and really lock everything. To, it depends what you what you're you're talking about, but um, in terms what level of rights. But I think the easiest way. Is, is is to actually make sure that the rights that you're um, are available at, at available easily on as many different platforms you, as you want for for a, a decent price and then you're l- less likely to see um, piracy because mm. if you're charging exorbitant prices and, and make it only available in certain places it's more likely to be pirated so technically it wasn't difficult I mean it was easy for you for, for the team technically to prevent someone say downloading that video however they might do it or saving it to their to their their own computer it's it's easy enough for you from a technical standpoint to do that um you just got to make them not need to do that i guess well we we were concerned i mean we initially we were kind of like a bit concerned about that but i mean iPlayer was download only that became sort of streaming and then obviously mm. downloads and obviously huge are now for for mobile um I, th- I think it ceases to be a, a real problem, to be honest. I mean, People, it's like cameras I mean, in the back of the cinema, isn't it? Like, I mean, yeah, you can you can have have EastEnders, and you can just like you might want to copy EastEnders, but obviously there's some um, 
there's some Hollywood movies on, on there. There's like big natural history, but I mean, there's a such a huge uh, variety of, of programs that, that are coming out now on iPlayer. I, th I think it's, I don't think it was necessarily such a, a big, um, such a big a deal. And just so on back on on those on that rights point, um, you when you joined or started the zone, that was just off the back of the uh, of was it Sky and BT pretty much taking hold of all of the rights for football in the UK. Yeah, I, I think I think at the time it was it was just Sky. I think um, I don't think BT even had a look in. Um, oh, I thought there was a combined deal, but I could be remembering oh, things um, incorrectly. I think obviously there, there is a combined deal now, yeah. but. I, um, at the time, it was just just Sky, and so I think that de that's delayed you from launching in the UK for a significant oh, amount of time. Um, I wouldn't necessarily. I, I think that um, certainly the tier tier one rights, obviously Premiership football, this is not something which the zone has um, has has acquired for for the for the UK. I mean, we've we've softly launched it in the UK, and the fact of we have a global service. Mm -hmm. um, but predominantly, it's it's um, fight sports um, in the um, for our global service. If you actually look at our service in Japan, we are sport in Japan. We have everything, everything you can. We are the one-stop um, shop for sport. If you go to Germany, uh, we are the predominant uh, sport player. So we we have things about Friday night Bundesliga, Saturday, uh, so Sunday Sunday Bundesliga, and the majority of the um, the Champions League and a whole bunch of other sports. In Italy, we're like like um, BT Sport um, with a supersized BT Sport. So we, we've got we've got some Serie A, but we've got a whole lot of um, other content. And look at us in Canada, we've got the NFL, we've got European football, MLS. I mean, it's, it's amazing service. And so, what was your biggest um, what, what what's been your biggest problem that you've had to overcome with the zone? Because obviously, you know, growing as fast as you have and and launching in two hundred countries, as you mentioned, over five years, that's a hell of a lot to achieve. Um, in fact, you know, for looking at all of the the stints that you've done, um, you've achieved a hell of a lot in a short spaces of time. But what's been the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome at at, uh, at the zone? So, I think. The, the level of scalability required at um, at DAZN, um has been uh, phenomenal because when you when you're at um, the likes of Netflix, you'd probably be lucky if you get 20% of people, um, 15, 20% people watching at any one time. Um, at DAZN, within a, within a particular market, you can have 85% of customers all watching at the same time. And um, however, during the week. You might be lucky if you probably have even five percent of them watching at the time. So, um, and then when you kind of get to a start of a season, I mean, uh, when we, um, if we got some big rights, start of the season, Syria, you could be getting half a million or more people um, signing up on 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 a day. I mean, it's just like um, you you have to make sure that every step of your um, of your um, of the service can deal with the volume of signups that, that, that you get, um, the volume of uh, people wanting to sort of kick off and watch a stream. I mean, we can have easily people um, just one stream watching, like one and a half million people watching one stream. Uh, so uh, making sure it's it's rock solid and robust. Sport is a lot harder um, net, uh, than, uh, than like movies and TV because 
what fans care about is latency. So if, if they see if they hear about a goal on Twitter before they've seen it on screen, they go mm. crazy. Um, if you get um, a low frame rate, so like 25 frames per second or 30 frames per second, then you start seeing judder in the ball. So you need to make sure you've got a like 50, 60 frames per second. So it's smooth. If you get grayness in the picture, you can't see the numbers on the back of football, the shirts. Um, uh, and, and also because it's live, um, what Netflix can do, they can do what's called like uh, multi-pass encoding. So they can, they can manage to compress the video to um, HD uh, video of lights of two, two megabits. Now with, with sport, you can't because you've got to, you can't encode it multiple times. You've got to encode it just once and get it out there. And so you, you don't have those level of advantages. And so we've had to do a lot of innovation on streaming technology and we've built our own proprietary IP on, um, on, on how to have our own adaptive bitrate algorithm specific for streaming live sport. Wow, that's incredible. And how, how long did it take for you to, to, to build that? I mean, you've, you've scaled as you've built. Have you had to sort of slow down the release of the product as you've yeah. noticed scaling issues? Yeah, I, and it's fair to, fair to say we've actually had to do a complete replatforming, what we call the zone 2.0, mm. um, because what we realized that what we built initially, um, which we were working with as a third party, is as a more thick um, technical architecture and what we needed is to build that into microservices uh, which we could scale more easily and can cope with um, infinite uh, demand and so and that's and that's mean re replatforming both um, our back end and our, and our front end um, also meaning that as we got larger it was more difficult uh, to work with um, the development team got initially when you've got a small development team it's easy to sort of get things out and, and re retest. But when uh, we've got like 500 devs, we actually have to split it out into chunks so that they they can have continuous development. And that, that again, that required partitioning and breaking up the service into smaller chunks. And so how did you how did you approach um, building that then? I mean, what was the um, you know, I think a lot of companies are going through expansion challenges, but probably not quite as extreme as this. This is an extreme scenario of growing that big in such a short space of time. How did you manage the pace in that growth? Um, I, th I think I think part part of that will um, we actually had some really great people. Uh, so a lot of it is is around um, people. I, there's um, some f phenomenal um, hires there um, who've um, helped us uh, through that. Um, being laser focused in terms of prioritization. So making sure that you're, I mean, prioritizing a, a variant on, on, on rice, uh, reach, impact, um, confidence uh, versus um, the effort. So you're looking, trying to get an ROA calculation of, of a bang, what's the biggest bang for the buck. Um, laser focused on, on, on metrics and, and being able to pivot. How many times have you had to pivot? <laughs> multiple times <laughs> i mean the thing is when you are doing streaming over the top um then you have to be and recognize that we're on 30 different platforms say for example samsung if samsung released a uh a an operating system update that we found out breaks um, our application we have to sort of get on it um and 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 work with them to 
um, to make sure it continues to work. Same thing if if Apple uh, releasing a new update on on TV OS that happens to break live. Again, we have to sort of drop everything and just make sure you, you fix that. But those are just the client end. But it also means in terms of CDNs. I mean, we we have say in Italy we have relationships with all of the CDNs, not not some of them, every single one of them. And so mm-hmm. if there's if there's any break in the chain um, of of actually from the camera in the stadium to the customer's um, to the customer's uh, com- computer or TV or or or, or mobile, then whether that would be through network connectivity, um, as actually physical network cabling, c- CDNs, uh, client-side applications, we have to make sure all of it is is really rock solid and robust and not going to break. Mm. And so you must hold a very high bar for the the releases that you're yeah. you're putting yep. out then. And so I presume that some of that initial, those initial ideas around sort of data and the high bar come from some of the stuff that we probably learned together at Amazon in terms of that, uh, the reliance on data. Absolutely. I'd say um, my time at Amazon is most formative um, mm. and f- has forever shaped um, my, uh, my, t- my methodology for working in um, product management. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a book um, which has recently been released by, um, the the former sort of VP of um, of Amazon Video, a guy called um, Bill uh, Bill Carr, and Colin Breyer, uh, called Working Backwards, which uh, I think is, gives a, a really great view of, of exactly Amazon's uh, working practices, uh, management practices, and and um, how that can be applied to any business. Yeah, well, we had a few uh, Amazonians on this. Uh... On this show, and and uh, I'm sure we'll probably have many more because obviously once you're in the Amazon circle, this keeps coming round and round again. Um, but in terms of the uh, some of those those practices, the working backwards, I think probably the the foremost is the PRFAQ. And if I remember rightly, that the you were you were shopping around a a, a zone PRFAQ right at the very start. That's probably yep. got to be the biggest PRFAQ I've or the most successful PRFAQ outside of Amazon. Would you would you suspect? I introduced the working backwards process to design and um, and it and it's used for it's been used for every feature. It's been used from the very first idea um, to um, every every subsequent feature launch is using uh, the um, Amazon working backwards process. So within that, you write a a, a fake press release, um, a, a one page fake press release, so you can really get in the customer mindset about. Um, Imagine this would be launched in six months' time. What would we actually say? And then you talk about uh, write about two or three pages uh, about uh, thinking in the sort of customer's mindset about um, what's how much um, how much might this cost? Where will I find this? How, how does it work? What why would I be interested? And so you're really thinking from a customer point of view exactly how they'd be envisaging that to sell giving you a high-level product vision about what this product is. At the same time, you've got a bunch of internally facing questions, whether they're kind of like finance, uh, marketing, operations, customer service, etc., to think through those. And that becomes your living, breathing um, document, which which describes what your service w- w- will be. And that's how everything's being produced at, at, at Amazon. And I think it, it gives, gives you a great... Um, customer focus but also it gives you a great alignment to actually make sure everyone's on the same page so you, you don't just be working on this um this application you ship it and, and then suddenly marketing go oh i wasn't expecting that 
Yeah, absolutely. I guess giving you a, a really clear view of what of what you're planning to launch actually yeah, before you've even built anything. Um, and a good way of probably throwing out bad ideas as well, I imagine. Yep, absolutely. Mm. And so that focus on on data that, uh, that that comes from from Amazon. Thinking back to you know, as we've talked through your career and what you've done, you've gathered a whole load of skills over the last twenty years from being uh, a man in his basement with a desire to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, you've developed a whole <laughs> load of skills and techniques. Um, do you think that affects your creativity at all? You know, do you, now that you've learned, much like a musician, some musicians refuse to learn theory, guitar players I'm thinking here, um, because they think that it'll, it'll cramp their style and creativity. Has picking up all of these techniques and relying on data, has that cramped your creativity? Absolutely not. It's, um, you still need creativity. It's not a replacement. Um, but even though if you have a new uh, creative idea, um, then um, putting that through usability testing, um, do, doing prototypes, Again, you're get, you're still getting data, so it's not just um, um, it's not just literally just doing small incremental uh, feature releases. It can be quite sort of big things, but it, it's it's looking at a whole range of data, whether, whether that be sort of as I said your analytics data for sort of A/B testing, multivariate testing, but as I said qualitative uh, data of what a customers actually feel like that, but also even like putting um, customer um, metrics uh, in terms of everything from like NPS, C CSAT, or customers perceived quality of, of, of picture quality, of video quality. So, so it's, it's all data, but you, you, still need, you still need good ideas. I mean, we've got um, some fantastic creatives um, at DAZN at, at who come up with some uh, amazing ideas, but even when, when they do so, we still put it through usability testing. Once it goes through usability testing, we put it through A/B testing. So it's all data. It's all data, but you still need good ideas. So in terms of the inspiration, which which is the lead these days? Is it is it does the data inspire the inspiration? Does the inspiration you know do you refine that through looking at the data? Which way around does it go? There's there's no. Um, I mean, they they can come from either idea. We can have mm. some phenomenal ideas from kind of like our our design team who sort of come up with, uh, with an idea. Or it, it could be. I mean, ideas can come from anywhere. It can come from, come from a developer, from um, primary product. Um, there's there's no often there's there's no shortage of ideas generally in organisations. It, it's more about making sure that you execute well. How, how do you go about uh, finding those ideas? So you talk about how an idea can come from a developer, for example. Uh, how do you make sure that the developer who may be lower down in the organisation can get that idea to you? Well, sometimes we, um, I think in design, we, we've actually run quite a few hackathons, uh, which is a great way of just um, developers uh, working together, teaming up with some um, colleagues and, and um, working up, working up some, some concepts. And so we, we've done some on social, we've done some using sports data, and a lot of those ideas have actually sort of made their way into the product. So is there anything in particular you've introduced from a cultural perspective to create that atmosphere? Obviously, you know, if you've got the hackathons, what other aspects, what does it feel like to work at DAZN? Uh, I, I think um, at, at the very start, because there, there, was, there, was no, um, there was no blueprint, there was no there was nothing. Uh, so it was very much mapped on a lot of kind of like Amazon ways of working. So introducing like this of learning lunches or brown bags for, from Amazon, sort of like share ideas. 
Um, again, you've, you've got these kind of, um, we, we have hackathons. Um, we work in, in, in two week, um, two week sprints uh, using um, uh, what Amazon would call like two pizza teams. So, so you actually have a, a team of about 10 to 14 like en engineers with a, a ratio of about one, one to seven, um, one product to about sort of seven engineers or, or so. They did lots of, lots of these sort of small um, squads with product and tech UX, and then continually um, evolving and work on this, this amazing product which we built. So you've got that sort of Spotify model set up then? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about testing as well there, Ben. So the A-B testing, how many experiments are you usually running on your sites? Well, um, it, it's, going, it's going up and up. Um, so originally we were kind of like running, um, be running a couple, but now we can be like doing hundreds uh, a year. And a lot of it is actually making sure that we, uh, we've got more resources um, in terms of from from an analytics and experimentation. We've got um, good tooling in, in terms of um, we've gone through trying lots of different uh, tool sets, but now we, we're using Optimizely, so server-side hmm, Optimizely, okay. and we're using that in a, in a way where we can have multiple experiments going on uh, at, at the same time. Uh, so... Um, and with, with like millions of customers, it, it's easier to enough to have statistically relevant um, data. That's fantastic. I mean, so I, I'm surprised that you uh, you've gone through so many different uh, uh, sort of tools there. I guess uh, are you thinking about rolling your own at some point? Um, well, we started out by ro rolling um, our own, and it um, just a, um, before we'd actually had anything. We, we then we moved to. Optimizely, which was your client side Optimizely, didn't, didn't quite what, do what we needed. And then we went to a VWO, and again, it was client side, we didn't exactly do what we needed. Um, so, and then we've pivoted back to Optimizely because they've improved their feature set, and now we're using server side, and it's just, it does everything we need it to. It's, it's a phenomenal tool. And so, all of these experiments, has that led to any more patents? Have you picked any more we, up along we, the way? We have, we've, I mean, uh, not my name's not on them, but I mean, I think we've, we've, we've got patterns out there. I think from what we've done in from the, as a whole range of different things from everything like sort of video playing, video player, etc. But yeah, there's a number of patterns. And so are there any competitors in the sports media space that you're particularly competing with? Or as you rolled out to all these different countries, did you just eat them up? It's, it is a, on a market by market basis. I mean, the, in Japan, we've just eaten them up. There were like multiple different cable operators, but now we, we are, we've become sport. Um, I mean, obviously in Germany, then um, there's there's Sky and there's there's Amazon. Uh, and, and yeah, because of there, course, there's, there's Amazon is starting to do uh, streaming sport as well now, yeah. I guess. Yes, yeah, they yeah. are. And so what's next for DAZN? Uh, well, we're, we are in 200 countries. Uh, they're... they're it's more on um, driving to profitability, um, and um, and also uh, deepening our engagement with customers. And what's next for Ben Lavender? Mm. <laughs> Wild eyes. We 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 will see. I'm curious to know: Are there any technologies or tech that Design have got their eyes on in terms of you know, for example? 
VR, AR, or 360 video, or any, any kind of interesting technologies that you you kind of want to see how it can work for you guys? I think things that I find exciting in particular is the uh, using computer vision to do motion tracking. So we, we've actually done some uh, proof of concept, which we were doing on, on boxing, where you, you are... You've, you've got eight camera, eight camera rig around the ring. Uh, you're doing skeletal tracking um, of the boxes. Uh, and then before that, you, you actually do a, a three, 360 body capture. And so you've actually got, you've got their skin um, and then you've got their skeletal overlay and using the uni unity, you stitch the two things together and then you can do some amazing things. So I imagine you could be um, looking at the sort of knockout, uh, Anthony Joshua's knockout through his eyes. Um, and wow. um, we're also working with other providers who are looking to do that for football. So imagine that you can actually be um, looking at um, the runner, Messi's run-up um, to, to scoring a goal. But imagine looking at through his, his eyes or the ref's eyes or from anywhere on the pitch. So... Um, and doing that in a realistic way. And whether you use that for actually broadcast graphics for action replays, um, or else you have a fully immersive way of being a, get into sports. So that's exciting. I think certainly about how you might be able to use, um, I'm certainly interested in, in, in uh, digital talent. Um, already it's a lot like that's being used in, in, um, uh, in broadcasting and in like, they're starting to use digital talent uh, within uh, the movies. I think Peter Cushing is being brought back in, in Star Wars and you've got Carrie Fisher's like Princess Leia is being brought back again in Star Wars. But I, I think being able to actually have um, the idea of real or um, real personalities in a digital form or actually new hybrid talent, having, having your digital talent that will do exactly what you want them to, to do and is not going to be constantly wanting contract re renegotiations <laughs> so I, th I think that there's there's a lot of possibilities you, you can do especially when you start to have real-time ai voice interaction with them then that their real start can be a sort of living breathing um a talent you can interact with so yeah mm. all of that's very interesting to me yeah it's, 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 it's a, a tough moral ground to tread on with that kind of thing because of course like with when the, when they release two pack i i, I I can imagine there being a, a, a real divide in morally what is right with that. How much can you actually play with Muhammad Ali's voice and, 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 and figure and all the rest of it and get him to do what you want versus actually providing a very, you know, um, respectable piece of entertainment that actually yeah. brings joy to the, to the customers. So it would be interesting. And I'm particularly interested about the skeletal modeling that you spoke about as well. Cause, cause I think, a pure assumption i think statistics and you know um well statistics are just such a huge thing in sport you know how fast was someone going how you know what what is the angle of the swing of in, in golf or something like that and to be able to remodel that and actually provide those enhanced statistics could be a really interesting thing once you've got that kind of skeletal data and i can imagine you need some pretty pretty heavy duty high frame rate cameras to be able to do that but it would be it would, i think it would provide viewers a lot more to engage with you know that, that well, sounds exciting the skeletal tracking yeah as you as you rightly point out yeah you can calculate the, the ball speed the ball direction um mm -hmm. like exactly where um where their leg was was placed 
Um, plus also using that data and compositing that that together, you can see the action from any angle. Obviously, yeah. when you're thinking about shooting football, um, it's a big, big pitch and you can only have certain cameras. But imagine when you actually start compositing this all together, you mm. can, you've almost got this virtual camera which you can have anywhere on the pitch. Mm. You could even probably you know do what if scenarios what if Absolutely. this player was slightly faster or if they you know yeah, they weren't wow. in yep. that place at the right time or something like that it absolutely interesting so you, if you start capturing that you can you can either replay it we can play around with the data because you've actually hmm. you've you've calculated every single movement that's that um that sportsman's made and then you can replay the real thing hmm. or or yeah, exactly. What if they kick the ball a little bit harder, they would have yep, got it in. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Possibly you really mess with people then, wouldn't you? You mess with the fans. They'd be like, oh, God, why didn't he do this? Or because, yep. you know, you know how people yeah, just point one miles an hour or faster, it would have been in. <laughs> yeah. <absolutely. laughs> the compute uh, power to do that would, would be incredible, though. I guess that's probably. Is that similar technology to to what they did with the Irishman to make all the, to make the, those old uh, gangster stars look younger? I I've not seen that, but I mean the technology. Oh, I'd highly about, recommend it. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The technology we're talking about, I've I've seen it. At least I've yeah. seen. Um, we we did this eighteen months ago for boxing, and I have seen it working for other mm. multi other other sports. Wow, so that's really it, exciting. It's, we, it's we, coming. It's coming. Well, we covered the on, on our news segment a couple of weeks back. We covered the Unreal Engine, which is literally unreal. Um, so I think it would be amazing to see that in you know turned into sports. I think an augmented uh, that augmented reality would be oh, that would just be a game changer, really. Yeah, particularly when you start thinking about. I mean, you have three hundred and fifty million um, viewers, um, well, users in um, in Fortnite, and that, that you, you start people getting things like live gigs with Travis Scott um, on there doing virtual gigs. I think the, the idea of actually people giving like virtual gigs. Oh, yeah. Is... Well, I mean, I think both um, Frank Zappa and uh, Roy Orbison went back on tour last year and they've both been dead for nigh on 30 years. Wow. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? It's crazy. But I think that, again, creates uh, a different... Uh, element of rights negotiation. Someone else is going to mm, have yeah. to take the charge on leading the rights there, I guess, to actually yep. have the likenesses. Because that was that that appearance from Peter Cushing, I think, was was uh, groundbreaking, as you mentioned. It was yeah. incredible seeing him back on the screen. So, what, what what's next in terms of streaming media then? Because we've talked about getting interactive. Where do you think we're going next? What's the we're talking about what the future is going to hold in a few years? Where do you think it's going? What's the next big idea that's going to land where we can say so, that you heard it here first? So I think <laughs> that um, mm. uh, for the last, I don't know, five, six years, we've been talking about unbundling. Um, you're having um, more and more services mm. um, um, breaking, the, breaking the bundle, uh, the, the sort of cable bundle or the sort of satellite bundle to, to actually have you have you have a Netflix subscription, you have an Amazon Prime subscription, Disney Plus subscription, DAZN sub subscription, ITV Hub Plus sub subscription. Like, there's only so many subscriptions people uh, will take. And I think that the, the, the great unbundling can only go one way. And sooner or later, there's going to be the, the great rebundling. So I think there will be, um, there's, there's, you can't have, there are, there's, there's going to be some consolidation um, in in uh, in the market because otherwise, um, I mean, Netflix are 
too big. Mm. Um, and uh, I, th- I think, I think sm- smaller, smaller players uh, will probably need to um, to work together uh, to be, to be able to uh, to continue to be relevant. And there's still, I suppose, some lack of access to th- certain things like live television. Like there are certain streaming services in the US from like the likes of NBC and HBO um, that we don't still get. We still don't get access to over here as well. And I think that's probably part of the unbundling. Do you think that there's going to be a revolution that's going to change that as well to make it more of a global product? I, I there's always going to be some regional differences, mm. um, both, both from a, a rights point of view. Or, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that um, I mean Netflix has the ability to actually do gl- yeah global rights rights deals. Um, I mean, obviously they make their own content which they can ship out to many different um, um, countries as as they wish. Obviously they they were having build deals with Marvel, but now they're they're producing their own. They they have got more control over their own destiny. Um, certainly, if, if you are in all countries, I mean, DAZN is in 200 now, then it, it obviously does give us the ability to actually do global deals. Now, at the moment, we've done global deals in, in terms of uh, boxing, but we could do global deals in other sports. Well, thanks, Ben. I mean, that's been excellent. Um, it particularly, it's it particularly exciting to, to think about where things could be going in the next few years. Thank you. And all the best with, uh, with DAZN. It's lovely to hear how it's, uh, how it's continued and how it's developed. Thank Good you. luck with the rest of that. I look forward to being able to actually subscribe properly in the UK and seeing this uh, augmented reality. <laughs> <clears throat>